Welcome to Thug Crowd Radio. Please listen to this important disclaimer in its entirety. All participants of this Thug Crowd Radio episode are characters. None of the stories told during these episodes are based on facts, truth, or reality. All works of fiction displayed during this episode that resemble real-life situations are coincidental and are not meant to serve as guides or tutorials to commit any crimes in any country. Please consult an attorney for local laws and regulations. And as always, trust your inner criminal. Welcome back to another Rip Roaring episode of Hug Crowd. Um, Welcome back here. Hi. Hey, thanks. Yeah, I took a much needed break um, from everything. And it was fun. Finally finished some projects that I've been working on for months that have just been dead in the water. And I like uh, having some time to play with those instead of uh, just sitting in my desk, spinning around, wondering what I'm supposed to be doing with myself. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So how's everybody? How's everybody this week? You guys doing anything cool? Nope. <laughs> um, busy. Just busy, man. I, I I started playing Exapunks thanks to Jin and. Yes. How do you like it? It's lit as fuck, dude. You have to uh, pay me your Steam and be friends on it. Yeah, like check what, it out. What is like you have game? to print a zine. Like you print it and staple a zine, and in it it's got like the instruction set and like examples of different things that you have to do within said instruction set to pass different levels. Like it's very cool. Like hmm. you step over your instructions and like yeah. But it's gamified um and stylized, so it makes it fun rather than just like looking at GDB. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The fun stuff. Um, no, I mean, I I was wondering about it because you guys have talked about Exopunks a bunch, and um, it looks pretty cool. But I, yeah, I don't really play games that much though, unfortunately. But yeah, it's all right. Anyone, you know, uh, you know how to adult you. That's all that means. Yes, <laughs> but it doesn't mean I don't know how to fun, which I feel like I'm slowly realizing I don't. So. <laughs> But you know, um, but yeah, I'm glad everyone's doing well. Yeah, um, last week's stream was really, really good too. I'm excited that you guys all could carry on the torch in case I ever run away forever. Um, <laughs> Shell, good step in. <laughs> Shout out to Shell. When I exit scam, when I exit scam everybody and collect my crypto millions um, off of Thug Coin. <laughs> um, but yeah. Um, <clears throat> all right. So yeah, we have a pretty cool show this week, and a lot of people in voice too, which is awesome. Um, we have Ian Coldwater here, uh, who some of you may know from the internet. Um, we're gonna talk about Kubernetes, container security, uh, DevSecOps, CTFs, and uh, getting more ladies involved in CTF and infosec. Um, so yeah. Um, oh, I'll post the show notes too in our Twitch chat as well. There you go. Um, 
It's a nice uh, Kubernetes deployment here, pretty uh, hefty. So I guess we should uh, get right into it. Um, so yeah, let's talk about the first um, item here, which is Google went down after uh, some BTP stuff. Um, anybody following the story? Yeah, a um, bit as it unfolded. I think the, that boy Nonex was on top of it um, pretty quickly. But uh, it's like, this is, I mean, just a scale up of what happens when we still use BGP and we're still relying, um, you know, mutual uh, trust as a method of authentication. And then it's scary. Like, yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm your peer. Okay. I therefore inherently trust you with everything. Yeah. No, I mean it's it's interesting to see how these things sort of unfold. Um, so saying it started here with with uh, a carrier in Lagos, um, and then a bunch of other stuff sort of unfolded after that. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to see though because there's so many different countries with you know their own um, connections to everything else, and there's just no stopping really anybody from doing anything like this. When you're yeah, there was um, a case in Australia like ages ago where like this ISP which is notoriously like terrible um basically just said that they had like half the routes for the internet and you know lots of things broke and I mean who are they like they're just some random ISP in Australia why do they matter to the entire world yeah, why do why does someone in like Nicaragua get to decide you know where I'm routing my internet traffic with any sort of authority yeah, it could be anybody like anywhere. It's it's really weird. Yeah. Um, that's the case now. But yeah, I was, I was wondering too. I'm reading this. There, the article said that there wasn't anything to do with the Facebook one, but I'd also heard people saying that Facebook was down as well. I wouldn't know. I think anyone who has half a brain doesn't hit Facebook on a daily basis. Come <laughs> on, bro. I've well. seen your Facebook. Oh, bro. <laughs> I just got roasted by PD Pablo. Also, I just realized that the um, the Twitch chat is still in the mode of um, the, the old stream, so it's tiny. <laughs> As a stream from the 24-hour stream. Uh, uh -huh. Did uh, somebody take ownership of the BGP thing? I recall it being some Nigerian ISP or something like that. Yeah, it was something similar, yeah. I think it came out of Nigeria, but I'm not sure like what the whole excuse is for it yet, if anyone said that it was an accident or what. It's really easy to fuck up BGP, so. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what, like, yeah, I don't know. If you were, uh, I mean, considering where we've seen it, get triggered from right so like these like smaller um entities are like triggering larger problems if you were in you know internet uh bad people and or internet organizations with money like wouldn't you use this thing that's really you know like if you wanted to own like a no-name isp who has these abilities to you know broadcast routes like wouldn't you just do that and then intercept whatever you want all the time 
I mean, in theory, but it's also loud as fuck. Usually, uh, if you screw up an announcement, somebody notices pretty rapidly. Yeah, yeah, there's that, um, we've talked about it before, the, the, there's a Twitter feed that does BGP hijacks, but um, yeah, the thing is yeah. that they happen all the time, right? So, yep. like, yeah, so, like, you know, if it's uh, attributed to a shitty ISP that doesn't have the ability to, do, you know, to do any real response on it, then... Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, yeah, take, taking kids, uh, taking candy from kids here. It's almost like you want to get a shell over there and uh, be able to fat finger some announcements that allow you about a minute or two of traffic that you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah like yeah, coordinating with uh, you know somebody's something's going down. Ready, set, go. You got two minutes. Yeah, okay, good. I love how it's a default answer to say you know there's no compromise with us. It's my yeah. favorite. Especially when you read over this shit. Fucking disgusting. We saw nothing in the logs. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean... <laughs> that we have. So the vulnerability, I guess, if we look at it, if we step back from BGP, like, the vul vulnerability is just based right back to, like, you know, peer-based trust. Like, inherent trust of peers. Like, that's where the real problem is. Yeah. Yeah, you know, like I said, it's it's wild that we get, like someone, you know, where you've never routed your traffic before, you know, in a country you've never seen, never been to, uh, gets to tell you where your traffic goes. Can I can I ask? And I, I know no one will probably admit if they are, but who's using Google Compute to this day? Who's using GCP? Yeah. I mean, all the people that didn't figure out Amazon's better. <laughs> uh -huh. Unless you're yeah. running Kubernetes, in which case GCP is leaps and bounds beyond AWS or Azure. Yeah, it's set up for Kubernetes. That's yeah. where I learned it. Um... All right, I, I, I'll, I'll pay that one for sure. But yes, um, <laughs> I've been using uh, yes. a Kubernetes cluster on GCP. I have my Hello Worlds up. Oh. <laughs> Oh, yeah. See, like, I heard him sigh and put his head down. Good shit. <laughs> um, but yeah, interesting stuff, though. Um, I'm just going to see how it plays out against something like Google, which is huge. But yeah, yeah. Um, all right, let's go to the next story here, um, which is Bug Bounty Hunter ran ISP doxing service. This is interesting. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's there's a lot more people than than this one person in particular who do this. Um, who participate? Hey, I met that kid. Yeah, I saw you talking about that on Twitter. Um, yeah, I mean, there's people that that I guess I don't know. It's it's <laughs> if you are if you are there actively researching this stuff, I mean, it's probably I'd like to hear um, Casey Casey Ellis's opinion on this kind of thing because. People who then, you know, are able to have the ability to hit something for a bug bounty, um, like out in the, like they they have the permission to do so, and then they are, you know, held also with the same accountability as reporting as they are. Like they they have 
I guess the the obligation to report it, but they, you know, don't have to. I mean, there's nothing stopping them from not. I guess, but they have the ability to hit certain functionality that normally they would get. They would trigger some sort of, you know, IDS or you know, other weird thing because they're in scope. Um, but then can leverage those sort of vulnerabilities for other things as well. So it's an interesting. I mean, sort of thing. Yeah. this is an ISP like T-Mobile specifically. Again, notorious for being. Yeah, remember the yeah. person from earlier this year um, with the plain text passwords thing? It's oh, yeah. Austria. Mm -hmm. Is well, Cricket still around? Mm -hmm. I have no idea. So one of the things I noticed, though, like about the guy, right? Like you look at his social media presence, like he's got himself a banner with a photo of himself. He's got like a logo and he's a he's a streamer and a gamer and also a security researcher and he's advertising that he's the plug like so what is confused here is his self like advertising his gaming stuff and now he's advertising his like hacking hookups like his doxing sim swapping hookups yeah and if you look into those eyes you can tell he's capable of looking at two shells at once simultaneously well, I mean, these these sort of things, though, I mean, when it, it sort of bleeds a line, because I mean, like, like, if you are doing these sort of things, but you also have your, um, you know, your, your, your persona is as a security researcher, but you also do things on the side that are potentially, you know, unsavory, you know, you have to sort of draw a line somewhere. And it, it's hard because when you get an, you know, when you get a three letter username or four letter username on some website and you want to brag about it, it's hard to not let that bleed over and use that for your self brand, you know? Yeah, I mean, like, you look at his, uh, his posts using, he's like looking for Ryan, Ryan S, RS, Iron, like, you know, like posting on, uh, was a hack forum? No, that's that guy can't program. Fun fact. I had to write some for him, but he's a good person, that kid. I like him. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying these first these people are necessarily bad, but it just it when you do when you are doing things that are illegal, like sim swapping, you should not tie it to yourself and in, in your other online personas. Um, you know whether they are you know I'm not also not giving up criminal tips, but this is definitely criminal tip of the day. Don't um, mix business with pleasure, I guess. I would didn't didn't the plug away. donate five hundred dollars to Thug Crowd during the charity event? Did he? Is that what that was? That was somebody. Did you see that? Plug. Oh, okay. I, I didn't even see. I don't know. I saw somebody named Plug, but it just said it just said Plug in the little message box. So who knows? Well, thanks again person. for the for the five hundred dollars plug. If you're listening. Yes, thank oh, you. Yeah. Um, and if this is you, um, I guess thanks. But it's also, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm just saying, I guess it's a cautionary tale for people who do certain things like this. If you are somebody who has direct access to a bug bounty platform and you find bugs and you also leverage those bugs, perhaps you should rethink what you are doing <laughs> because that's obviously going to be tied back to you and your personal financial information if you are a um, a researcher, especially through bug crowd or hack form, you're going to have to put in your stuff somewhere, um, your real info. So, um, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah, you bring up a good point. It's like public dumps of zero days, right? How fucking stupid are you? Like, you shouldn't do that. Your rep is then torn to shit. Yeah, double you dipping be... is really dumb. 
Yeah. There's uh there's the the upsec for hackers or upsec from freedom fighters by the graph as well, like you know, compartmentalized. So say this you, you wanted to be famous and infamous at the same time, which you can't. Well in most cases you can't. Um then don't like if you're the guy who has access to the API, don't be the guy who has access to the guy selling the API. You know, like there's yeah. things, you know, like can like cross contamination of those two personas, like is insta fail. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it, right, is that kids, especially, like have that immortality complex, and uh, you know, really, really want that that fame, that whatever. And uh, I mean, a lot of times also too with bug bounties, right, is you're finding these things that could be sold for a lot of money, but, um, you know, for whatever reason, either you don't want to go through the the work of exploiting them and making the money off of it on like on your own or uh, whatnot, you know, you just give them to the, like the bug bounty like vendor, but like some, with something like, um, you know, T-Mobile stuff and being able to dox people, like it kind of fits into something that you know, this person already knows and has like an established like route, I guess you would say, for being able to sell. I guess um, with the bug bounty thing, like the difference between getting paid out for a bounty and writing, you know, a real weaponized exploit that's, you know, it's has all the parts to make it a weapon. Um, you know, like Akinetics doesn't write exploits for you, bro. Like, Burp Suite doesn't write exploits. Like, you need to put two and two together, and then you need to take it to a further step if you really want it to be, like, a proper exploit. Like, exploiting something, you know, through Burp or whatever, as it's not a product that you can sell. It's just a bug that you can submit, and this platform will give you money. So the barrier to entry to from finding bug to get money is a lot lower. It brings up a good point. What do you see as being a, like, you know, someone who actually writes custom exploitation as a skill set? I think it's highly beneficial and something people should definitely do a lot of research on and dig into. Yeah, I think it's and, uh, Seth Both and Grok had a conversation that, you know, with two people, part of there was a thread about it on Twitter, maybe like two weeks ago, about like, what is a weaponized like what is an exploit and what is a weaponized exploit like what makes it weaponized what's the full deal like at what point does it become a cyber weapon yeah uh i don't know though like i haven't actually looked into any like classes or you know special stuff set aside that actually actively teaches you to do that sort of thing and i think that's what we lack a lot of is we're always weeks behind when trying to exploit or run some you know exploit package against something that's exploitable it's just like it blows my mind as far as how much stuff isn't like customly written yeah definitely like you know i've, I've written um pocs before that have been released that you know they're on my github and stuff and it's like yeah it works yeah it exploits yeah you get a shell but if you were really going to turn that into next level what kind of payload do you put with it what what is your actual target? Like, oh, okay, so you own, um, I don't know, you own a, a router or something, right? So what do you, what do you actually do with it? Like, why, why are you targeting that device? You know, 
what are you going to do next? Like, what does that device protect? Like, there's a whole bunch of different, like, ideas that go into um, what actually steps it up. Sorry, that's just, not- yeah, it's weird shit that I've just, like, been considering lately. Yeah, like, literally being the person who writes the shit that gets implemented into products. I just think that, like, the um, mentality of a lot of people who are in InfoSec, like, don't want to, th- like, they're like, oh, no, I'm just a, I, I don't do criminal things. I just pen tape with burp and write reports. Like, that's, I find the, I find the security flaws and, and we fix them. But that's where, like, bug chains and things become more exciting because you know if you're if you're uh, if you're if you're an okay pen tester and you find a couple of bugs that you can chain together you'll be like oh okay i'll report these they'll get fixed but if you were really writing a weapon like wouldn't you see how far does the rabbit hole go like how many times do you pivot until you've gotten to the sensitive data that you wanted to steal or something like that like there's a whole you know before you get to the, the well that's the difference system. between pen testing and hacking dude Right. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, nobody wants to know about hacking. Everybody wants to know about pen test like, or info. And it's a bit of a shame. Well, it's if you want. It's not a bit of one. It's a, it's a fucking shame. <laughs> like, honestly. But, yeah. Well, let's, I, mean, uh, I guess, <laughs> next uh, story is uh, speaking of somebody who did get away with it. Uh, according to Vice, um, uh, hacking team um, Phineas Fisher has got away with it. Uh, so basically, the people who were um, trying to get after him for the hacking team stuff declared that they just don't know who he is. Um, <laughs> so, Yay! <laughs> it's just like one of those things where you're like, okay, um, interesting. <laughs> because it's, you know, when you do something on the level that he did, um, you're definitely going to have some people who are after you that are not necessarily experienced um since the people that he targeted were people who actually did this professionally for nation state um and so nobody's been able to find who he is uh except for that time that he did that puppet thing um yes but he, he also gave a updated interview there to fill in some of the gaps about how he got in which was interesting i don't know if anybody noticed that part but it was due to the uh corporate vpn effectively i think was it the founder i don't know some some High up individual within that company decided they could not be bothered to install the new VPN. So they kept the old server up just for this guy. And that was the point of entry. Excellent. <laughs> I mean, um, this is interesting, like uh, what Shell was saying before about like God Complex and not wanting to, you know, wanting to be uh, like younger people, like wanting to do stuff like if you think a lot about people who swat people and um like that guy who got the, the other guy shot um swatistic he said that he got a rush out of being wanted by the police and like um all that kind of stuff which is understandable but at the same time like he, he didn't like that's not the right like i, I feel like this guy probably really had the heat on you know like he was probably really sweating and going to the nth degree to not get caught whereas like if you're getting a rush out of not wanting to get caught then make sure you're not gonna get caught right yeah (laughs) a little bit um speaking of they i believe that came out 
with the the recent wave about how he didn't get caught and uh you know there's the typical tour protections things like that but it sounds like the ultimate wall of frustration for the italian authorities was in the way he obtained the bitcoin because they traced it all the way back to i think it was kind of distributed but a, a large focus was on, a, on one of these exchanges where you could like trade things for scratch off something or i don't know what it was exactly but effectively uh the bitcoins were stolen so there was no record of transfer even something like local bitcoins where it's still you know you're going to be able to find the email records or you figure out where that uh in interview the individual who did the physical swap uh and, and figure out where they were maybe pull to the security cameras none of that existed when you're stealing the origin of the bitcoins so that's the the hard stop they run into is being unable to trace it back due to the theft. Nice, take notes, kids. I mean, hmm? you know, for investigate investigative purposes. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, our next story here is uh, about this uh, BCM UPnP hunter um, stuff. So basically, there's a botnet that is targeting some Broadcom routers through the uh, UPnP port. Um, and yeah, it's been going around a bunch. And I don't know if anybody has experienced any actual hacked routers with this. Is this the yeah. bug where uh, you could remotely forward ports using UPnP? Like you could hit UPnP externally and then just forward internal ports, like where? I think so. It's an older bug. I don't remember exactly. Hold on, let me look at this here. I saw Wait, that worked. So that it, it it functioned exactly as it would internally, but on the external face. Oh, it's, no, it's the format string one. It's the pre-auth. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's but it's been around for a while though. Um, yeah. So it's on I mean, some. Like this still comes down to UPnP being exposed on the WAN interface, though, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's, yeah, there's like multiple fails for this to still be active. Yeah, so that's excellent. Interesting, yeah. interesting stuff though, because I don't really know. I guess where these types of run. Um, are these more for corporate industrial stuff rather than like home routers? Uh, Billion, D-Link, Cisco, Linksys, now Belkin, TP-Link, yeah, not all yeah, the stuff. Yeah, most of that stuff's consumer. Yeah. Consumer-based okay. products. Yeah, I mean... Morons who don't patch anyway. But I mean, not to say that... I mean, I definitely know that there's businesses that operate on the same hardware. So they're, they're just like, oh, oh yeah. we need the internet. <coughs> oh, ISP sends us a router. Like, plug it in. It works. Now internet for our office. It's like, uh... <laughs> Fucking go spend a thousand dollars, you cheap pricks. Like one thousand. That's the thing too. Think about think about like firewall AP devices. How much do they cost? They're like a, they're a K a piece, right? Right. So how many people do it the right way, and how many people just think consumer products are a way of getting? Bought? It's a different story too, in terms of budget as well, and how much money someone's trying to make, or what raises they're getting on a yearly basis based on spending. But no. I think if you've got enough money to have an office, you can surely have enough money to buy a router. You would think, man. You also have well, very frugal people in operations. So I mean, it's still like the way it comes down to the way people think about security. Still, and like 
that's always going to be what it comes down to. Yep. But have have you compared an out of you know thousand dollars versus you know something you get Best Buy for fifty bucks? Not a whole lot of difference unless you're gonna actually tune that properly. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what one of the barriers is that um, you need someone who's got you know at least CCNA, JNCA, whatever to go and actually configure it or get someone in who can configure it and manage it. Um, I mean, fuck, you could put PFSense or OpenSense, PFSense, like any one of those. Yeah, OpenSense, Manowall, PFSense. Yeah, SmoothWall. Like, I mean, I'm sure that, like, even with the, like, Cisco Juniper-type hardware, there's still, like, there's still problems. It's not, you know, it's not infallible. It's not the magic did bullet. You, did you say Cisco Juniper-type? Well, I'm just using major vendors as an, as an example. Juniper is bad. But I'm just saying, like, the... <laughs> I'm just saying, like, you know, it, it's not, it's not the silver bullet. It's just much, much better, and you're not gonna get it like 2000s era, like UPMP, like rocking out on your fucking <laughs> on your uh, on your on your endpoint. So, yep. But you might have a buffer overflow in IPsec. <laughs> Man, I can't. I always bring that up. To be honest. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's always going to be something somewhere, but boy, oh boy. Hell yeah. Um, also, the next one is pretty cool, too. Um, this side channel stuff um, in NVIDIA. So there's some researchers who had put out a uh, method to run a malicious, um, what do they call a, mun- a malicious computational workload uh, <laughs> a game. Bitcoins um, on the GPU, which operates alongside the victim's application. Um, so, depending on the parameters, intensity, and pattern um, of the of contention in the cache, um, this is way too verbose. But basically, um, people are able to run um, certain uh, malicious computational workloads on GPUs. Were they targeting um, specific miners? Um, I'm not exactly sure. It seems like they are just some. Yeah, just NVIDIA GPUs. There's a full white paper about it, but any when I see um, white papers uh, on GPU stuff, I there's always like uh, physics graphs that I just yeah exactly. <laughs> I'm like white oh, pap- oh, the white papers are for the people who, who are at the level about? of <laughs> writing white papers. Yeah, like that's who white papers are written for generally. Yeah, unless you're like me and read them for fun. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I like things I'm taking away from this though is that that WebGL keeps coming up, like OpenGL and web browsers. So like it, that's what makes it way more scary, I guess, is being able to do because previously like mm-hmm. WebGL and rendering wasn't exposed, like didn't expose ninety nine, like like almost everything that you can do with like CUDA, right? Mm-hmm. So if they're saying that you could potentially get through a web renderer a mm-hmm. malicious GPU workload. That's that's opening up serious doors that were previously uh, thought to be closed. So yeah, I think that's now, all that sort of hardware acceleration stuff that's that's available is still like you know so some of it's very experimental. It even says it in the browser, you know. So there's certain certain things that I, I yeah I don't know I guess enough about GPU programming um, to be able to make this thing <laughs> or to be able to make sense of how you'd actually go about implementing this. But 
the vectors for it are definitely becoming more and more um, widespread due to people wanting that sort of hardware acceleration for GPU things, running stuff in browser and crazy effects. I mean, what if you had like a malicious hashtag workload that you were distributing with like Hashtapus or something through an XSS on like, you know, um, a social media site? Like yeah, because you're like cracking ridiculous hashes because people are looking at like you know their social media streams. Oh, yeah. yeah, we have it in some like just random one pixel by one pixel canvas element that's just uh, going ham. I mean, should we just start unchecking hardware acceleration for browsers? I typically do because <laughs> nice. Uh, I don't really have nice computers anyway. So. <laughs> but one of the things that was an it has been an issue with um, like. Traditionally, uh, the, the sort of crypto workloads, like cryptocurrency proof of work workloads, being performed um, in a browser, like with, for example, the um, what's that place called? That there's like a capture that's it's not really a capture; it's just like a a content gate. Um, oh um, yeah, what's it? Shell, you know what it is? Coin. Yeah, something. Coin yeah. Hive. Yeah, CoinHive, that's it. Right. So, yeah. so CoinHive, right, you, you basically get like what looks like a capture and you have to wait for it to like mine one block or one whatever it's doing, one workload, and then you move on to the next. Now, the problem is that that's happening at a CPU level in your browser and everything run like traditionally um, that one thread just like maxes out at 100% and then you're like, oh shit, why is my one thread like why is my computer fucking up i've only got two cores and now my desktop is lagging when you start moving things to the gpu like the user probably won't notice other than maybe their computer's getting a little bit loud unless they're gaming i guess but for general yeah. usage like a little uh, bit of frame, like frame drop like you know. yeah that's the thing about um like this kind of stuff too Right, so it's very easy to target like people who have GPUs. Like you know what they're doing with their GPUs generally, like it's gaming stuff. And so like when I was actually uh, tearing apart malware, uh, I was looking at uh, for like YouTube like Fortnite aimbot videos. I was downloading all of the uh, all of the EXEs that link to, and there's a lot of coin miners there. Yeah, and you bring up a good point. It's like, how, how much attention are people actually paying to their home systems as far as loads go and where those loads go? That that's just disgusting. Like, if you're a gamer and like you have a custom PC, you you should know when something's not right, or you should be paying attention to like frame rates or what's happening or where video memory is allocated. It's disturbing. But if if you uh, look at the task manager in in Windows, right, like it doesn't show you GPU load. You need to install something else. Of course, man. It's expected with Windows, though. I mean, that's just the joke that it is. But yeah, oh, you're it's, right. It's the same same with Linux. Like, it, although, like LM sensors will give you some stuff, and you know the Nvidia uh, Nvidia driver has some stuff. But like, it generally, it's it's fairly blind. Other than like temperature is the main thing you'll notice from LM sensors. But... Um, actually, no, I think actually a lie. There is a GPU load. But yeah, it's it's not something people are really looking at. Yeah. 
definitely gonna keep an eye out for that stuff though. Re actually, read this white paper. <laughs> yeah. um, and actually, looks really interesting though, because this is you know using WebGL. This is stuff that people are developing on right now for all sorts of you know fun projects. So yeah, tech vectors galore. Um, so the next one we have on here though is also related to cryptocurrency. This is fake cryptocurrency wallets found in the Play Store. Uh, I mean, this is a given. I don't trust like any of the wallets that are in the Play Store, um, except for the one that's officially given out on uh, the Bitcoin website. Even still, I don't like that one. Um, but yeah, there are some fake wallets that you should look out for. It's fucking hilarious, okay. though. You think about like Google Play Protect and what was put in place. They're just looking for malicious packages, not stuff that's just built to be malicious in the first place, right? I mean, yeah, you don't even have to like, because it's not like it's doing anything that would necessarily be malicious by asking for permission. It's just, it's doing what you want it to do, just not putting things where you want them to go. Um, yeah. So it's not necessarily like anything that would, I feel like it would be really difficult to figure out. You have to audit each individual one um, to know. And also, you know, figure out who's getting the most complaints. But I mean, there's so many apps with so many complaints that it's also a huge uh, thing to have to wade through. And people who are new to, to cryptocurrency might just chalk it up to them not understanding what they're doing before they realize that all their transactions are being just siphoned off somewhere else. Yeah, yeah definitely. One of the things that's been common in the past um, with uh, wallets as well. Um, is like you have so when you're generating your address it's actually already pre-generated like x hundred using the same seed like using the same uh random seed not the, not the actual wallet seed the like you know, the system randomness seed is not used and it's using its own seed so you can predict like uh like you can you have like deterministic wallet addresses for the next however long so you can like either correlate stuff or you can guess stuff or you can you know um do other wallet based attacks so there's there's a long history of like since people have figured out how to write their own bitcoin wallets people have been writing them poorly and i think this is just the iteration where they go like hey let's not accidentally write them poorly let's like purposely write them poorly <laughs> it makes sense yeah well yeah um like someone brought up a good point where it's like there's things that like look malicious and then there's things that are malicious while just looking like they're doing exactly their function. And also like with this stuff, I was just uh, looking at like being search results earlier and it's hilarious how many of them are actually malicious and how many of those malicious things rank higher than the actual thing you're searching for. And I feel like, especially on like Google play, a lot of the other stuff, like where you can just put like put an ad up there and like it immediately throws whatever you have to the top and if you're not obviously malicious do you guys want to talk about bing or it could be yeah, bing. yeah. the one that makes decisions for you to install malware i think yeah. you search for google chrome and malware comes up first fucking um, nasty dude but yeah, like I think the, the Google Play like star system as well, it's like it's it's straight up um, you know, the same concepts as like obviously SEO, but then the black SEO. Just downvote the shit, like give one star reviews from a thousand accounts to the top wallet and just keep doing that every day until you know, it just has bad reviews everywhere. 
Yeah. Like, even if you find like one UI bug that is actually a UI bug, like if you go back and forth between these two screens and then like swipe up, swipe down, like Konami code shit, then this text doesn't render perfectly. Bug. And then other people will be like, oh yeah, this thing's got bugs. It's shit. It's like, it doesn't have to, you know, other people will follow that kind of stuff. Well, it's like we were talking about uh, a while back too, like it's with, like with GitHub, right? It's like all people look at, it's like the stars. You have the stars, you're good. It's like, it doesn't matter if your code's actually malicious. <laughs> it doesn't matter if your code actually works. Yeah. If you got the stars, you got you got the shit. Everybody, please star all of everything in uh, github.com forward slash the crowd so that we can make it to the top of the page. <laughs> yeah, we're going to start yeah, publishing. Uh, open SSA. You know what's really funny, though? What? It's on GitHub. Everything's on GitHub. <laughs> the best Not everything. I mean, that's where everyone looks. That's, that's the shitty part, so. I forget who said it, but someone said um, earlier this week that GitHub was the best site on the internet. So I'll leave it at that. Mm -hmm. um, that was me. <laughs> yeah, the next one that we have here is the an attack that uses a malicious in-page document and outdated VLC media player to give attackers backdoor access to the target. Now, I don't think I'd ever heard of in-page before I read this article, but it's a way of uh, creating Urdu language um, documents um that basically had some something some sort of a of a vulnerability in it that would be able to drop a malicious dll um in there and then use that to attack uh, vlc's dll's or do some dll hijacking on the vlc um so yeah um yeah you can see the whole malware or the uh, attack chain in there um, but it's interesting though, because there's we saw this before. And I was trying to find which specific one we covered before, but there was one that had attacked um, Korean language documents, I believe, um, and it was a, a you know, text parsing error that triggered you know some sort of code execution somewhere. Um, but I don't remember exactly which one it was. I'm not sure if it was this. Um, what was it called? It's one of the North Korea ones, though. Um, the Mao Cheng rat dropper, I believe it was. But um, regardless, though, it, it's interesting to see these kinds of bugs in the amount of encoding that it has to take place on all sorts of different operating systems. And yeah, I don't know. Yeah, this is weird, especially because it says, right, InPage is a, like a word processor and it's you're exploiting VLC with it. Well, well yeah, you're... you're, you're <laughs> Using you're using Impage as a way to download and oh, yeah. replace a DLL to attack VLC, so it's just a, a oh. chain of exploits here. But oh, okay. it's still interesting though. There's this you know it's only used you know it's uh, Urdu, Persian, Pashto, and Arabic, um, which all have different writing systems and you know different text direction, and so all those different uh, you know sorts of things can can cause issues to be seen on countless uh, text and Unicode parsing bugs. Um, but yeah, it's pretty interesting though. Um, <clears throat> I wonder how many how many more sorts of things like this there are, where there are specific applications that are used specifically to render um, certain types of text. I assume there's a lot, because there's just so many languages in the world. But yeah, for sure. Keep a lookout for. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, so we can take a look at some of our good reads too. Um, the Steam bug, I guess, um, was actually kind of funny that somebody was able to find a way to use Steam's uh, game API to figure out which uh, install keys belong to which games, and they could just download them and, and install any game. Yeah, that one was uh, actually funny because basically uh, the API asked you how many keys you had or how many keys you wanted. And if you said one and you didn't own the game, it would give you an error saying you didn't own the game. But if you asked it for zero keys and you just didn't own the game, it would give you a key. Uh, which <laughs> yeah. is, and hmm. so you just generate keys for whatever game you wanted uh, through that API. I mean, do you guys have the checker for this or? <laughs> Well, apparently I this. Want, I want Red Dead Redemption Two on PC. Um. <laughs> well, uh, you know where to look. Um, your checkers. Um. <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah, that, that's really cool though. Um, glad someone found that. Although it apparently does not work anymore. Um. Oh, but it was still... it was submitted to the bug bounty program. Oh. oh okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, no. yeah, he he got twenty five grand for finding uh, Steam. I mean, I oh really? Like yeah, okay. I feel like Steam is one of the game, one of the platforms that I wouldn't attack sheerly out of like the amount of effort that would go in to find a bug in it. Like, I mean, I'm sure there's plenty, but I'm sure plenty of people are looking. You know. Well, the thing about it is that a lot of the plat, like a lot of the endpoints people attack, are hidden behind. Like, you have to pay a hundred dollar fee in order to become a developer, and most of the bugs that come out of the Steam program are from those developer back, like those developer endpoints. Yeah, and so yeah, you don't get as many people hitting it as you would necessarily think for that reason, or at least. Where most of it comes from, if you look at the what they disclose, which is a fair amount. Time to start looking at uh, Discord with Nitro coming up hot. Oh man! Presenting <laughs> with the cannon wants. So. Um, so yeah, the, <laughs> the next one that we have here also interesting too. The uh, uh, the PHP LDAP admin um, zero day here that's yeah got violently disclosed. <laughs> uh, just anything that has like PHP, my anything admin, like just write it off as <laughs> fucking stupid. Like, fucked. Do not touch. Just put PHP, a protocol, and admin after it. See what comes back. We should have a yeah. generator for that. Um, yeah. Just talk automatically. PHP, PHP SMB, my admin. admin. <laughs> it's disgusting. PHP, SMB1 admin. Um, yeah, so. <clears throat> There, uh, yeah, I got released. Um, so take a look at it. It's in our thing here. Um, I don't know how common. I'd never heard of PHP LDAP admin. I'd heard of LDAP admin, but not that one. So <laughs> I don't know. Um, but that's a pretty serious one to uh, hit if you can <laughs> to add yeah. your own users and things like that. So shout out to these little guys, uh, Kexec, Kexec, for uh, for that. But look at look how short the actual disclosure is. Like, there's, there's not a great deal there. 
I mean, it's like looking at it, it looks like it's the um the server side code that this is going to correlate with is not going to be very glorious at all. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So two more good reads here. Uh, I didn't actually read this one. The systemd dynamic user feature. I forget who actually put this one in here because this was it seemed cool, but I don't have enough info to explain. Hold on. Did anybody read this one? I did not. Wait. So it's yeah. creating a dynamic user when at what? At like some time, uh, system D unit. Yeah, I don't know. Actually, hold on, I'm looking at here. My computer's being slow. <laughs> Give everyone a, a second to read up. I didn't expect us to actually get to this uh, in our little chats here, but, um, but yeah, system D doing a thing. What's yeah. The, um... Everyone's favorite. Someone linked it. Someone linked it in in IRC earlier in the week, and um, there was a talk given at BSDCon about um about System D and its ideals. Like, did anyone watch that? No, did not. Oh, man, it was. I I I eighty percent liked it and twenty percent fucking hate. But um. <laughs> It, it just it, it brought up some really good points about system D and then it sort of like killed it with like yeah you guys should embrace some of the things it can do with like you know um, you know naming of devices because of slots and stuff like other shit that I don't agree with and I was just like ah uh, okay, here we go here comes the fucking propaganda yeah, seems like some crazy. type of redundancy that was built in and was then exploited like if you look over there it's fucking weird. Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of thing that, like, a dynamic user, like, you don't need, like, some, just some of the features in systemd have just gone out of control. Like, some of the core things that it it does is uh, quite good, and some of the things that it does are unnecessary and should be, like, you know, like, optional type stuff. Like, this type of thing looks, like, definitely optional. Like, I don't want systemd to create users when a unit you know, have like when it, when a unit is triggered, like I'll right. But what kind of option is that? Like they'd probably present it as, "Hey, do you want this failover feature?" And you'd be like, "Yeah, of course I do." It's fucking, I don't know, it's treachery for sure. Well, my, it would be more like, you know, do you want to create a failover user? Like hell no. Like if the user doesn't exist, then they don't have access. Right, yeah. but how many people think like you do, DNZ? I don't know. Maybe, maybe there should be some more. <laughs> there should be some. <laughs> You're right Maybe there. it shouldn't be, in fact, but uh, I'm, I'm not going to say people should think like me. I'm a fucking asshole. <laughs> um, yeah, on the last one here, I think, Shell, did you share this one about the um, uh, yeah. piracy? Um, so, yeah, that was yeah. interesting because there's, you know, obviously um, <clears throat> tons of shady things that happen in general. I think, actually, one of my favorite talks that I've seen, I think it was a DerbyCon. There's a video that I've seen. It's Jason Scott um, about um, it was called "You're Stealing It Wrong," like like 25 years or something of inner pirate battles. And this kind of reminded me of a little bit of just the different things that people have to do to get um, pirated games. It's funny though. You and, think about like emulators and ROMs that you can do. 
off the shit and you've been able to for a long time. It seems like the furthest thing from Nintendo's mind is building something in that's, you know, uncrackable for lack of a better yeah. term, but it's this sort, of, this sort of thing that has been happening for, for years. It's happening since the dawn of video games. I mean, people were oh, yeah. thinking that I didn't have that sort of Tempest uh, scanner thing that I forget what company had wanted to do that would be able to drive at people's houses to tell if they were using pirated software or not. Like stuff like that's been going on since the eighties. Like, so it's, it's interesting to yeah. see though, how this sort of thing is now spread when technology is ubiquitous and everybody is you know, just, I, mean, I can confirm that like Nintendo have like there's markets and obviously you guys have the, the the shady markets where you can go buy like like 3ds like pirate cards that have an SD card and stuff you know those things like Nintendo definitely in this like here at least go around to those markets um the the, the real popular ones that sell a lot and take their shit and shut them down like they do actually. Yeah, like that, that's about the extent of I've ever heard, you know. Excuse Whereas, me, PD, do you have a moment to talk about SEMO? I, I do like look at if you would take Xbox, for example, uh, if you played an Xbox game that was not released online, you would be banned from Xbox Live, like uh, to your console, right? Yeah, where so like. There was different, you know, there's different approaches. Nintendo's is weird, though. I don't think they focus so much on the, like, online side of things. That's why, like, things like Simu exist and, like, Wii U emulators where you can seriously just sit there and and choose what you want and go with it. Like, Well, yeah, but, I mean, that's because the Wii U, they decided not to put any more time into it now that the, you know, they're not releasing games for it anymore. Right, but the same thing will probably end up happening with Switch. You're going to see another emulator oh, yeah. program pop up and something that people actively develop and make money off of. Um, oh, yeah. I'm really um, certain that like, the Xbox was the most hacked console, obviously, for a long time until the Wii came along. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, the Xbox Media Center was, was huge. Yes, it was still a thing. Like I still, yeah. to this day, use Cody on my TV because it's convenient. I mean, you know to watch um, PBR shows through my TV capture card. You guys ever play Halo CE? Oh, yeah. Good shit. But yeah, no, Nintendo actually is a lot more aggressive about protecting their copyrights than than most. Recently, with their whole like Super Nintendo, like like SNES Classic and NES Classic, they went through and they literally pretty much purged uh, all of the ROMs that they had specifically on the box, on that box. A lot of their like very popular ROMs, uh, they went and they sent cease and desist to a ton of different like ROM websites. Hey, what was that? We talked about this previously, but there was, uh, which one of those mini consoles was dumped and found to be running like actually pirated ROMs. Yeah, oh, yeah. Because they had they had a header from like some I forget who it was, but somebody had put something in there that was a signature basically of a pirated ROM that they had made, and people had found that. Yeah, and the good stuff. The good stuff. <laughs> yeah, that, that's <laughs> yeah, that's that double-edged sword of archiving and piracy. You can make backups for yourself. 
Um, yeah. And then the PlayStation had the wobble on the uh, on the lens, so that it would follow the the uh, the wobble on the disc. <laughs> I had never heard of that. Yeah, well, oh, at least man, that, that can you explain one. that a little bit. So, when you with the PS One, um, well, the PSX, the uh, the black CD, everyone was like, oh no, black CD, that's why you can't copy it. That, that was actually like bullshit, like had nothing to do with it. There's this, when they, when they press the, like the CDs, the originals, the uh, line that the, that is uh, the like uh, hills and um, what's it called? Hills and dips or whatever in the, on the, on the disc um, are like not in a, perfect line they actually wobble like side to side and that wobble is what the, the laser is following um so when you had a chipped playstation it was able like it could still read it could always read normal cds but if the wobble didn't exist it was something to do with the start of the disc and then the wobble in combination and that was like their copy protection but i mean that those things got mod chips like bitch like straight up and or you need enough um, comparison to like the N64, where you needed a card, right? So is this yeah. the original PlayStation? Because the original PlayStation, I thought they burned them backwards, meaning instead of clockwise, they burned them counterclockwise, which is why you had to get the Plexter brands that could also burn counterclockwise. I thought that was the deal. I think PS One's the second PS2. edition. PS One's the second edition of PlayStation, right? Like the original. PSX was the original. I think. I think if Blind Hacker, I think that was. I'm pretty sure that was PS2. That spun. Oh, well, it? it might have been GameCube spun backwards. Somebody spun them backwards. I remember that because I had to buy a specific brand of Plexter with the right model number to be able to use some software to burn them backwards. Damn. Yeah. So with PlayStation games, uh, I was um, able. Like I would buy the cheapest hundred stack of dirty CDs and like get a 20 percent fail rate um but and use, using like just an any burner um and any burning software i think I, it might have even been like uh what was that the sheet it was like you know uh clone clone cd uh, or something clone, oh i know what you're talking about um <sighs> that's going back I, I, yeah, it's just like a little ball of white with like a little black dot as its head. So it's just terribly like 32-bit cheap. <laughs> yeah, like so simple, like click, click, okay, here's CD. You put in the first one and then like you wait 10 minutes or whatever. And then it'd be like, all right, put in clone this now. And it'd kick out the, uh, kick out the CD tray and then you pop it in and then wait. And then it'd come out and pop it out. And there you were good. You were good to go. Shit, 10 minutes. Were you rich? This thing could like uh, probably half an hour. Yeah, <laughs> you know when you're young, your time is skewed. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, but hey, uh, it's almost time for our interview. Um, I really quickly wanted to just run through some of the people that had asked or had put their information out there for our hire a hacker thing. So yeah, we're trying to make hire a hacker, um, which is a channel that we've had and a page on our website something a bit more uh, useful for people and so uh, the first I guess little addition of it will do a couple minutes but anybody who is either looking for a job or looking to fill a position um, is more than welcome to DM us on um, 
on Twitter or join our Discord, which the link is, I'll just type it in the chat. It's leet.club. Um, so you're more than welcome to join um, if you're looking for a job. Um, and it doesn't have to be security related, but we have a lot of people in our in our chat that talk about wanting a job and they want to um, you know, either not necessarily do security, but could also do secure development, which is a huge thing that a lot of us um, are familiar with, um, but it's hard to figure out where you want to actually apply those skills. So we want to be connecting the right people together. Um, so the first, we have two people that are looking for jobs. So the first one is RevDev, who's here actually, I believe, in chat now. Um, I'm a full stack dev from Germany, looking for work in Germany. Uh, they're willing to move or do remote work. Uh, they have four years experience in PHP and currently working in with Angular and Node.js. They don't have any professional pen testing experience, but they participate in CTFs and labs like Hack the Box. And if you want to hit them up, hit them up at mail at revdev.me. Um, and anybody who also is looking to contact these people that I'm mentioning can come into Discord and at them, usually find them. Um, the last one is Artron, who's looking for a job that involves network security, website security, systems administration, or forensics. He's also in as well. So anybody who, yeah, wants to share jobs that they're looking for, um, you can hit us up and we will shut you up as part out there. Um, but yeah, uh, I think we should get into our interview now. Um, Ian, are you still here with us? I'm still here. Awesome. Sweet. And you're here as well too? Yeah, I am here. How many hot chocolates are you on now? How many have you drank? Uh, I think three. I, I've kind of lost count. The only reason I was going to stop at six is because there were six in the box. Ooh. We'll That's a hard limit, though. Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah. Let's let's, let's jump into uh, let's see Kubernetes, uh, CTFs, and getting more women into CTFs and kind of security in general. So, um, what's up, Ian? Hey. Uh, I don't know. How are you? All right. So let's jump into uh, Kubernetes. Everybody asks you, you know, what the hell is Kubernetes? So let's start there. What, what does it do? Okay. Um, Kubernetes is a container orchestration framework. And explaining it involves a couple of different levels of abstractions because it helps to know what a container is and why you might want to use one in order to know why you might want to orchestrate many of them. But basically what it does is it takes containers, which are sort of an application and all of its dependencies packaged into a neat little box and allows you to deploy and manage them in an automated way at scale. Um, it's very useful if you have the use case for it. If you don't have the use case for it, it might be overkill a little bit. And um, yeah, nice. that's, so that's the very short version. Definitely. Uh, so taking that from like the sysadmin perspective to help add uh, further scope around there. So. You know, things, containers are an example of Docker, but if we go from like the bare metal up, uh, you know, we're talking about, I assume installing some level of OS onto the uh, hardware, correct? Is, and, and then we uh, put Kubernetes on top of that, is that correct? Um, well, that's, that's a question. Okay, Kubernetes is not an operating system. Um, a container is not a thing. It is a, an image that you deploy, pulling down from an image registry like Docker Hub, or if you have a proprietary one or whatever, and then you deploy that image from there. You can also push it back up if you think about it like a source code repository like Git. Um, so you can, you can Docker pull, you can Docker push. And um, 
Kubernetes creates clusters on um, that uh, contain a master node, which controls the thing, and worker nodes, which contains pods that are logical groupings of containers and uh, creates networking and structures around them so that they can or cannot talk to one another or work together in a logical way. Um, I don't think you install it like an OS. I think it's a thing that you integrate with, uh, you know, with your existing containers and the system that you have around that. Okay, so, so. Um, but a container itself, uh, as I said before, and got distracted slightly, is not a thing. A container is um, a single process on a larger shared host. So if you think about a VM as like a house with its, you know, it's got its own wiring, it's got its own plumbing, it's got its own OS and resources around it that belongs to it. A container is more like an apartment. Um, containers will be a single process on that host and will share a kernel and other resources with the operating system and the host itself, whether that's a bare metal host or a public cloud or a private one. Just a quick question nice. then. Yeah, um, yeah. So you mentioned like, uh, so with, with your Docker containers or something, uh, say you pull in Alpine, it's pretty uh, and you're putting it into Kubernetes and, and you have like uh, three Ps in the pod. Um, does that mean you then, does that assign like three processes to that or it, like three single, is that three single processor cores or are they all sharing resources? Like what's that kind of like? Um, everything is going to share resources with the host itself. So it's going to be one process and it depends, I think, on how you set your Kubernetes cluster up. Um, your, yeah, I think that that's going to depend on how you set it up. Um, so yeah, you establish like the amount of cores that you're going to allocate to like a Docker instance like that. Yeah, you 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 um, provision your resources and your resource quotas according to how much of the host resources you want to go to Kubernetes. You don't have to do that, but you absolutely should because if you don't, um, Kubernetes auto scales according to as much resource as it has access to according to whatever traffic you need. So if you don't provision your resources, you're going to DDoS yourself. And we'll chew on your hypervisor. Nice. I was going to ask you, like, what do you, as far as beginners go, as far as someone who's being introduced to Kubernetes, what do you recommend they set up and use or tools, tutorials online? Sure. Um, there's a book by Kelsey Hightower called Kubernetes Up and Running. Um, O'Reilly published it a little while ago. So it, and Kubernetes has a three month dev cadence. Um, it has a very rapid rate of change. And so that the book itself is slightly outdated, but Kelsey Hightower runs a GitHub version of it that he updates with every new version of Kubernetes. So um, that's going to be up to date and that will explain to you the kind of like how to set it up and get it going in your home lab. Um, if you really want to nerd out and know how it works under the hood, uh, there's also a resource called Kubernetes the hard way that allows you to bootstrap it from scratch and understand like exactly what's happening at every step of the way. Um, you can install something called Minikube, M-I-N-I-K-U-B-E. My favorite. On, on, there you go, on your computer and, um, and kind of set up clusters locally from there. Uh, GCP, um, I do know about at least one of you's feelings about GCP, but GCP for Kubernetes is great. Um, has uh, pretty good like tutorials and setups for Kubernetes also. Nice. 
So it sounds like there's a, a lot going on there. Um, everything from you know the OS and Kubernetes itself is a very large uh, surface. Uh, sounds like there's a lot of attack surface as well. There is a lot of attack surface um, and there's a lot of surface to defend and a lot of moving parts and a lot of complexity, which on the one hand can be really exciting because um, you know there's just so much fertile ground there. And on the other hand, if you are a defender, can be kind of daunting because there's a lot happening and it's really easy to screw up. Um, the good news is it is actually possible to secure it as well as possible to attack it. It's just going to take some work on your part. Um, the bad news on my part as a speaker is that giving one size fits all advice for either how to attack or how to defend Kubernetes pretty much doesn't work because every install, every, every cluster, you know, depending on your public cloud, your installer, like which version you have, like what you're running on it, is going to have very different defaults and very different um, needs for hardening, as well as a somewhat different looking attack surface. Nice. So, um, How often? Go ahead, DNZ. Sorry. I was just gonna ask, like, so, um, so in our in our brains here, we've we've spun up uh, a cluster of little thingies that go, they need to talk to each other with an application running in each one. Um, how how does the networking differ from your average plug Ethernet cable between machine one and two and switch and so That is a fantastic question. So Kubernetes does not natively do its own networking necessarily. Um, it's it's designed as a um, Kubernetes itself is API based. It's defined by YAML, and uh, the networking is designed as an overlay. Um, the the whole thing is flat and um, it's going to provision namespaces and IPs according to namespace. And Kubernetes, the way that it is designed is, it's pretty open by default. It is, um, it's made so that like you have granular control over what you can do with it. And that means that you can do your networking any number of ways and you can lock it down very well, but that it won't necessarily be like that out of the box. Um, there is an entire ecosystem of like Kubernetes plugins and products that people use with it. Um, some networking products that people really like a lot are um, Envoy Proxy and Istio. Uh, people have been talking about running service message meshes around that. And uh, that is one way that you could like provision your network out. Um, but basically you're making the decisions about what decisions it makes and then it will just sort of listen to you. Um, and that is going to look different depending on what you use and how you use it. People use things like Weave or Calico or Flannel on top of that in order to provision that networking too. So you mentioned Istio, which is um, one of the few things in Kubernetes land that I've looked at. Um, so with Istio, for example, like you have these little uh, things that are looking at your, your process, like you're looking at your, your network communication. And they're also sending their own network communications out um, did you want to talk about maybe sidecars and, and that sort of thing? Uh, do I want to? No. <laughs> 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 to be quite honest, um, Istio is really complicated and it is one of the things in Kubernetes land that I'm actually just going to own and be like, this is the thing that I feel less comfortable talking about at length. Um, but if you would like to wax poetic on Istio, I will happily hand it to you for a minute. Uh, I mean, so... Uh... All right, so like with uh, my my short experience with Istio, um, we're able to inspect like HTTP traffic and and basically uh, create rules to um, 
to limit which uh, services could make API calls specifically to other services um, and then actually get telemetry on that. So there's uh, it plugs into uh, Grafana, I think. Is it plugged into Grafana? I can't remember. Little influx a, a DB there? That, yeah, there's there's a there's a bunch of different ways that you can actually visualize uh, the communication between your network, and then actually use that to further block it down. Um, and then that traffic, uh, the the actual Istio traffic is uh, not um, not accessible. Like you can't just have your pod go and hit the Istio services on the side. They're they're sort of like running um, in parallel with the rest of your little cluster. Yeah, um, that's. I, I hope any for anybody who's listening, I hope. Somebody else knows that better than me. That's the best I can explain it. Um, <laughs> and you can you can do some pretty serious restrictions in network segmentations and um, different kinds of controls in Kubernetes so that you can only have things see and communicate that are supposed to be, and you can prevent things from being able to see and communicate that aren't supposed to be. Um, as an attacker, if people can figure that properly, that will make your life much more difficult. Um, also, as an attacker, very few people can figure that properly. So for whatever that's worth. Hell yeah. Uh, how, how often is this being updated and changed? Like from a uh, attacker and defender per perspective, what's you know how, how often is that uh, changing the situation? Um, so Kubernetes itself has a really rapid rate of adoption and a really rapid rate of change. Um, it is the second uh, most active um, project on GitHub in terms of contributions after the Linux kernel, which is not technically hosted on GitHub. Um, so it's it's extremely active. Um, it has a very, you know, strong community of developers and people doing various things, pushing code and, you know, working on it and improving it a lot. Um, the last several versions, the security has really improved immensely. Um, they put out a new major version approximately every three months. That That is their development cadence. Um, as a speaker, it just about exactly lines up with every time I give a new talk about it, and then they break a new part of the attack surface, and then I have to change the talk. Um, <laughs> the, the thing is that, um, you know, like anything else, you can still find older versions floating around in production in the wild. And so, although, you know, Kubernetes 1, you know, 10 on breaks large parts of what is sort of classically known as the Kubernetes attack surface, you can still find a lot of older versions out there that are not necessarily going to have those controls in place. So um, as, as, the, as the versions go higher, attackers are going to have creative and defenders are going to have to do less work themselves to be able to configure it because the defaults are going to suck less. Um, as the version goes down, you know, you might find them unshowed and maybe they're abandoned. Uh, if it's yeah. old enough, there's no authentication and really no protections to it at all. Mm. I was actually about to ask you, so because of this, you know, rate of change and the fact that there's a lot of people who, you know, just get the assignment, like, please DevOps are, you know, current environment, you know. Um, but so what are some of the types of common vulnerabilities and misconfigurations that people do currently or people have done in the past? Um, the people who are looking to, you know, experiment with Kubernetes or even possibly use it on their production environments. Um, what are some of those sort of common um, vulnerabilities and misconfigurations that people should look out for? Sure. Okay, so, I mean, if you're going far enough back and, and you know, when we're talking back, consider that every version of this is roughly three months, right? So 
If you're running anything under Kubernetes 1.6, which right now I think 1.12 is the latest stable, um, that's still really not that long ago. Kubernetes itself came out in like 2014. Um, if you're running anything below 1.6, there is no multi-tenancy. There are no multi-user roles. There is one user role. That role is admin. There is no authentication on anything by default. There are, uh, you know, ports that are natively exposed to the internet that have complete admin control over the entire cluster. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's an open door. Um, in term, generally speaking, in terms of misconfiguration, um, there, you know, there isn't still necessarily authentication enabled in places by default, so you might have to set it. Um, again, the older the version is, the more likely it is that you'll have to do this, but um, in some places, authentication still isn't there by default, so you want to make sure that that's on there. Um, you want to uh, be using role-based access control, so RBAC and configuring it properly. Um, you want to make sure that there aren't ports exposed to the wider internet. You can find Kubernetes clusters on Shodan that have various uh, you know, interesting configurations to them. Um, and if you have to have a port exposed, you wanna make sure there's auth on it. You wanna make sure that your data is being encrypted um, in traffic and at rest because otherwise it's uh, easy to pick it up. You wanna make sure that you're using a version of etcd, masternode that is uh, not a version old enough that everything is in plain text because historically it has been with no authentication involved and you could just get all of the information about everything in the cluster and all of its metadata from there. Um, and generally speaking, you want to, you know, segment your networks, uh, you know, be careful with your data, be careful with your secrets, um, you know, provision your resource quotas properly. You want to make sure to log and monitor outside of the cluster because if somebody is inside the cluster, and that's your only source of truth is the logs in the same cluster that just got compromised. So those people could tamper with the logs and you won't know any better. Um, How do you feel about and containers as far as maturity goes? Containers themselves, I think yeah. are, uh, there was a, uh, IBM put out a white paper a little while ago uh, that said that a properly configured container could now be considered as secure as a virtual machine. Um, whether those containers are properly configured is, of course, another question, but it is the thing that can be done now. Um, I think containers get a bad rap. But yeah, I, I also don't think actually... you're a special case. That's why I was asking you about it. Right. <laughs> I, I think that, um, I mean, so uh, Jessie Frazil, who's amazing, she's uh, J-E-S-S-F-R-A-Z on Twitter. She's incredible. She, um, in order to prove that containers could be secure, uh, has a CTF that she put on um, it's contained.af, so like contained is fuck. Um, nobody's ever been able to escape the containers to get the flag. It's never been solved. Um, and she did this to be like, okay, you think that containers can't be secure, watch me. And I'm somewhat familiar with how she set up the back end of it. I've never solved it either. Um, so like that can be done. Um, in terms of like, like Kubernetes is definitely maturing. You know, I would say that like containers- I have a question for you. A long time, you know, Sorry. like they've been around, you know, before we've got containers, we've got shroots, we've got jails, we've got zone, you know, like, like it's really just a descendant of that. And like, that's a pretty mature tech at this point. Kubernetes 
is still kind of in awkward adolescence and is growing up a bit. That's kind of what I was going to ask you too, is like how much of this stuff is integration and in dev environments versus actual production stuff that you run uh, on full stack, if anything? Can you clarify the question? Um, so if you're running in, uh, do you run, I guess I'm asking, do you run Kubernetes more internally, you think, than you do like in a production environment or something that's publicly accessible? You're asking me personally? Yeah. Um, I don't have a DevOps job anymore. So I can tell you that as of this month, um, I pen test other people's clusters instead of my own. And I figured um, as much. I was saying, how much of that do you see as being misconfigured, though? Is that why you have a pen test role now? Or? Um, I mean, there are a lot of misconfigurations <laughs> out there. And, you know, I think that knowing what I know from doing a lot of speaking to a lot of DevOps people, I think it's less common to run it in prod still. And when people do run it in prod, they're often scared and don't really know what to do. Um, but there's, I think, more experimentation by the numbers with Kubernetes in general than there is people running it fully in production. But people are running it fully in production. They're just sort of moving that way slowly. So what you brought up um, some uh, the project contained as fuck earlier. Like uh, there's another project that that Jess worked on that I followed a little bit in Go, which was the uh, uh, the application profiler and the canary stuff that was container as well. I don't know if you've seen that. It's like pretty, pretty. Yeah. She's, she's got some good stuff out there. Um, with unprivileged containers is pretty great also. And like the ways that, um, there's a word that I'm blanking on isolation is being done in a container context. I think her stuff's really interesting. Yeah, I'm trying to find this. I can't remember what she named it. It starts with B, I think, but it was like when I read it, I was like, oh man, this is like, this should be. Is it the IMG one? No, uh, it's, it's, it's the one that actually runs as a process within the container mm. and uh, tracks uh, system calls from other processes or files touched using like stuff you'd normally run on a, on a host, but being container aware. Yeah, um, her stuff's great. Like pretty much any project I think that you could point to is going to be moving that space forward in really interesting ways. Um, Google Cloud Platform also did a really interesting thing with isolation recently called GVisor um, that changes the ways that uh, containers have, containers don't have hypervisors exactly, um, but changed the ways that container isolation happens in relation to the processes on the larger hosts. That was super cool, I also thought. You, you're you're not coming through. Uh, because I'm being quiet and waiting for somebody to ask me something. Oh no, I was saying you. You was trying to talk, but oh. yeah. you, well, name is well, so you. second. Yeah. <laughs> you you need a new name. Me. Yeah, that or <laughs> like huh? you. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome when I used to actually go on party lines. Um. So the uh, I wanted to ask you a bit about um, container escape stuff. So a lot of people hear about container container escape for Docker and, and, and other sorts of um, jails and things. But what are some of the sort of, uh, I guess, techniques that you would use to actually do something like that if you were participating in a CTF or other legal hacking challenge? Um, it depends on the, uh, it depends on what you're looking at. 
I guess I'm, the answer to Kubernetes security is always depends. I'm so sorry. Um, course, one, uh, the, um, there was a particularly nasty CVE that came out, I believe, late last year. And I'm looking for the number, which I have written down on a paper in front of me somewhere, which of course I can't find. Um, but it's, uh, it was called Subpath Host Mount. And um, basically, that was a full like host escape where you got roof privilege via the way that um, Kubernetes at the time dealt with mounting. And that was the biggest breaking change that Kubernetes has ever made um, when they fixed that. But as an attacker, that was a really interesting um, it was a really interesting escape because it allowed you to get full control over the host. Because if you think about the ways, and this is the case in general with container stuff, um, you know, the thing about shared resources is that like a shared kernel means a shared kernel attack surface, right? So if you have a, a host or an operating system that is vulnerable to something like Meltdown or Spectre, you you know every container. Um, you know, all of the clusters, all of the everything, all of those processes are going to be vulnerable to the same issues. And, um, and the way that Linux in general treats namespaces and the file system, like everything is a file. And so, um, and the ways, and Kubernetes, you know, every container is basically just a bunch of Linux primitives sort of stapled together, right? Like they're made of C groups and namespaces. Um, the combination of those things can mean that with a misconfigured or unsafe system that you can um, if you're running if you're running privilege in a container, you can escape it and then be able to get privileged access to that host um, because you can just jump from one namespace to the other. Does that make any sense? Um, no, it, but it's it makes total sense. Yeah. That's what I was saying. Like, uh, if you if you run a cluster and something's like exploitable on a kernel level, like your your cluster's fucked. Right. And the thing is, <laughs> Kubernetes is only going to be as secure as the kernel, the operating system, the host itself. And so if you have a vulnerable host, like, you know, those resources are shared, you can go to town. And and yeah, looking, I mean, and, you know, if you're in a CTF or other kind of legal hacking challenge and you're trying to enumerate your environment, you know, that those are things to enumerate in a container or cluster context like you would anywhere else. I think with, um, like, Dirty Cal got obviously huge... Uh coverage um being a, you know one of the, the big name container escapes of when it happened but i think it's just a lot of people i've seen that deploy uh docker stuff will, will just be like oh yeah no it's in a container um my node.js app runs as root that's cool like it, it's in a container it's like you know but it's like no people don't think that oh wait but if you have like access to privileged system calls from the container you know, you have access to privileged system calls just the same, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of my uh, one of my favorite things that hit the news this week, which didn't get mentioned in the news section, it's going to shout it out for five seconds, is that Cloudflare just announced that they created a new cloud platform that um, compiles all things pretty much into WebAssembly and depends on uh, V8s. Uh, via JavaScript for isolation between tenants, which is very brave, um, has a lot, puts a lot of faith in JavaScript and a lot of faith in um, the abilities of those sandboxes to be able to stand up to side channel attacks, which my understanding is that it can't. Um, and so that's <laughs> a thing to keep an eye on if those things what are interesting to you, because 
creating an entire security model off of Electron is about as good an idea as it sounds like it. Paul <laughs> yeah. so here actually didn't see it, see this before. Um, do you know what the platform is called? Um, Cloudflare put out a blog post a few days ago called, I believe, Cloud Computing Without Containers, in which they pretty strongly buried the lead of like, we have created an entire cloud platform around this stuff. And um, they got called on it somewhat by like people being like, this seems like a bad idea. And their, their responses are uh, very self-assured and arguably comedy gold. Um, yeah. so there's that. I mean, I spent a few weeks ago, uh, I spent like maybe five days digging into V8 um, and well, actually specifically into Node.js, not in, like, mostly around Node.js, but a bit of V8 as well. And uh, I've looked at it in the past as well. And I'm, I'm not as confident as they are. No, I mean, all of this is built upon Node, right? It's all, it's all going and, you know, partnering with NPM. And no, I'm not as confident as they are either. I'm a little about, alarmed. You can talk about NPM's history if you want. Right. That, but yeah, it's another disgusting decision. So, fuck. I'm sorry. You got me a little worked up, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Far more than I should be. So now, um, um, but you know, talk about interesting opportunities for a taxer. Right. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead and consult so now, for ten years and retire. Uh, Fuck it. So, Ian, do you want to talk a little bit? I guess now, so you're saying you have a new job that's to do with um, with pen testing cloud environments like this and DevOps environments. Um, sure yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I, was, I was saying I wasn't sure if you would want to discuss. I guess some of the newer ways or the, the techniques that you would use in this that would maybe differ from a sort of traditional pen testing thing um, where you would actually hit cloud services. Because I feel like we talked a bunch, we had a, whole, had a whole episode about cloud security. We talked a bunch about DevOps, DevSecOps, pipelines, containers, all that. But I feel like a lot of us still who might um, be listening are not really aware of some of the sort of things that goes into this, where a lot of things are coming into the cloud environment and there's a lot more room for error where people are sort of just following the trends and you know and installing and, and doing whatever framework they see other people doing and maybe not doing it correctly so i kind of wanted to see your thoughts about what your techniques are i guess for actually assessing a cloud environment because they're usually pretty massive um that is a that is a massive question um, yeah, it's pretty big. You can break it down however you want to or not answer it at all. But uh, I guess I want to just pick your brain and leave it open-ended to share what kind of things that you have sort of discovered or that is useful to you. Well, if I'm if I'm really getting meta about it, um, I don't I don't know that I want to talk about my work life in a ton of detail for, for a reason. You don't have to do that at all. No, no um, worries. But but generally speaking, I mean the thing that you said about like there's, you know, people use these new frameworks, they're kind of the hotness, people really want to use them and they're excited to, but they don't necessarily know how to set them up right. Um, a lot of these surfaces are massive and involve kind of paradigms that don't really uh, apply to a lot of kind of our understandings about security testing and, um, you know, what security tools look for. Uh, they're not necessarily looking for things that are ephemeral, um, that are stateless. You know, they're, uh, you know, a lot of the telemetry and things like that, that sort of security tools traditionally have just don't really work that well in a container context. And I think that there, uh, there's a lot of room for growth in terms of understanding both on the end of people setting it up. And also I would argue on 
uh, you know, on the pen tester end, there's, you know, um, I think a lot of people are still sort of trying to wrap their minds around all of it. And, and that's understandable because there's a lot. And I think, you know, I feel very lucky to have come from a DevOps background to be able to have exposure to those kinds of texts and not have to like learn about them all from scratch while learning about my all my other things at the same time. Um, so I'm just, you know, I'm just, I'm just validating that it's, it's hard and it's complicated for pretty much everybody. Um, and yeah, I don't know. That's, uh, I think that's as much as I would like to say about that in relation to my work life right now. Also though, I will say that people who are planning on pen testing cloud stuff or things that involve cloud providers, you know, if you're pen testing anything that touches AWS, you have to get permission from Amazon. If you're touching something that has a lot of cloud provider dependencies, you need to get permissions from all of those third parties or they're going to go after you. So, you know, if you have six of them, you need to, you know, either they need, your client needs to do it or you need to do it, depending on how you're setting your testing stuff up. Um, but it is important to know that that needs to be done because otherwise you can run into some trouble doing that. Yeah. Remember, <laughs> it's just somebody else's data center. Right. Totally. No worries. It's fine. <laughs> Yeah, I've definitely got a couple of uh, very. Actually, had a few cease and desists from people here from Amazon. They they go quick. If you run Nmap on them. Oh, Amazon does not fuck around. They will shut you down so fast, or they will shut yeah. your client down so fast, and then your client will be upset. In my experience. Yeah, I got a cease and desist email within minutes of me starting an Nmap scan from an AWS uh, box without asking for permission. So, yeah, yeah. good stuff. Um, <laughs> were you scanning internally, or were you scanning uh, your own AWS infrastructure? Or were you scanning? Oh, I was, I was, I was scanning my own AWS um, infrastructure. I wasn't. It was just another box that I had, and I was just asking. <laughs> you have to get permission to do your own too. Oh, yep, yeah, it's a, if, you run, if you run Nmap against localhost on an AWS instance, they'll shut you down. It's crazy. <laughs> Good stuff. Ew, somebody sensitive. <laughs> Um, so, uh, yeah, I guess, if, do you have any other last words, I guess, on um, cloud security stuff and before we can move into maybe some CTF sort of things? Yeah, um, I don't know. I encourage everybody to learn about this stuff because I think that it, as I said, there's a lot of room for growth in terms of understanding and there's a lot of opportunity there, both in terms of, you know, interesting attack surfaces that are not necessarily well configured or understood and in terms of like how much of a difference you make as a defender. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot, uh, and it's, it's a pretty wide open field that to me is pretty exciting. Cause I like the emerging tech game. And if, if that kind of thing, and if, you know, playing catch up with three month dev kittens, this sounds fun to you, like, you know, come hang out. Uh, there's, there's lots of room for, for contributing and for, for play. Um, and yeah, I don't know. That's that's pretty much what I have to say about. I mean, I know I have a ton of stuff to say about that. I could talk about this for days. But <laughs> that is all that is you what have I have to say about that right now. Awesome. And so, does anybody? Do you have any uh, links or places where people can see your talks or any upcoming talks you could go to? I am not understanding you right now. I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. Am I, hold on. Who's typing real loud? The blind hacker. Oh, um, um, as I said, is anybody, do you have any links um, to any of your talks or any sort of resources um, for people who want to check out um, some of your stuff? Yeah, um, I am not good at copy pasting and typing at the same time, but uh, okay. most of my talks are on YouTube and you can look them up. Um, 
and there is yeah i have a slide deck that's out there and another couple that i probably ought to put up um if you watch my DerbyCon talk and you're like what was the name of that tool that you neglected to put on a slide this is probably my biggest regret as a speaker ever because i get like 30 dms about this a week um that tool is called netassert n-e-t-a-s-s-e-r-t it's done by control plane and that is the one that i am referring to that i grievously neglected to put on a slide <laughs> um yeah we'll definitely link uh in our show notes um your all this stuff that you've mentioned so far um cool and anybody who's interested can we'll link uh at derbycon talk and anything else in the future awesome so, yeah. thank you so much cool so yeah i guess let's um we can start moving into some of the ctf sort of things because you've been involved in a bunch of, of different things that i've seen on the internet um like recently and yeah i guess i just wanted to say um what are your you could tell us a little bit about some of your uh, CTF experiences. Absolutely. I, um, I really love doing CTFs. For me, uh, it's kind of the only sport I've ever been good at. It's really fun. I really like doing them. Um, and one thing that has consistently been the case in CTFs that I've done is that I'm the only woman in the room. Um, or maybe there will be one other one who will kind of, you know, kind of wander in and then wander back out. Sometimes there will be another couple of them, but there are very, very, very few of us. And for me, CTFs have been so valuable in being able to grow my skills in different areas and being able to like sharpen my sword, you know? And I want that to be an, a thing that other women have the opportunity to do. And more importantly, like feel like they have the opportunity to do, because I think that a lot of women are just very intimidated by those spaces. and um, you know, don't feel like they belong, don't feel like they're smart enough, don't feel like they have the skills, maybe just walk into the room and see a bunch of dudes and are like, oh no, I don't know that I feel like I belong here in a sort of very just immediate sense. Um, but like, but CTFs are great and I want other women to be able to, to access that and to be able to feel like they can. And so in, you know, one of, uh, one of the things that I have that is either a positive or a negative personal quality, depending, I guess, on how you look at it, is that it's very hard for me to see um, something that seems like it could be improved uh, without wanting to improve it. <laughs> you know, it's, I guess it's DevOps, you know? And um, uh, I was like, you know, what, what can I do about this? And um, one of, in Minnesota, where I live, uh, there's a, for developers, there's an all women hackathon called Hack the Gap, which uh, happens every winter. And it, they have this, um, this model where, you know, everyone who participates is a woman, all skill levels are welcome. It's, you know, designed as this space that like learning and experimentation are, are really, you know, really like, uh, really welcomed, really valued. And um, when I was a developer, I participated in it a few times and, and it was just this really wonderful supportive space where, you know, like everybody felt like they could come and be themselves and ask questions and like everybody learned together and you could just watch people grow in real time and it was gorgeous, you know. And, you know, as I moved away from development and toward becoming more of a breaker than a builder, it was like, I want women in these spaces to be able to have access to that kind of energy to a supportive learning space like that. And so it was like, can I take this model and can I translate it to a breaking context? And so what I did at DEF CON was, um, you know, sort of thinking about this because I wanted to do the, you know, CTF stuff at DEF CON and was one of the uh, women that WISP sent 
uh, via sponsorship because my random number came up. So I was talking to other women in the WIST channel and I was like, if, you know, if we had a space that was like, like, a, you know, where women could participate in the CTF and where learning was encouraged, would that be something that there would be interested in? And there were just immediately everyone's like, yes, I absolutely want that. I've always wanted to do a CTF. I've never felt like I've been able to do it, but that's like a thing I want so badly. And it was like, okay, cool. Well, clearly this is a thing that people want. So let's make it happen. So I called a team, um, was like, if people want to participate in this, like, let's make it happen. So they started out with like two women and then there were like five and then there were like 12 and then there were like 20 and eventually 60 women signed up. Um, And uh, I think 40, to 45 women ended up participating in the CTF in real life at DEF CON. And it, it was exactly what I wanted it to be. You know, it was um, all skill levels and experience levels uh, working together. I got some sort of subject matter experts, um, like forensics hearing to like come and help with, uh, you know, if there were newer players who were interested in those topics um, and wanted to learn more about those things. like. Um, and, you know, those of us who were more experienced kind of helped the new people along and we all like worked really collaboratively together and it was great. And it was like, I want there to be more models like this. And so, and like you know, more examples of this where women can come in and feel like they can do the thing. And so I called one kind of impromptu at DerbyCon and coming up, um, we're going to do the Metasploit CTF online. And this one is the first all online CTF we've done like this, which I think will be fun. Um, so it's an open invitation if, you know, if there are women or non-binary who are interested in participating and playing, I just invite them to the Slack team and then we all work and play online together. And the point is not to place, um, the point is to learn. And so there, all skill levels are welcome. Um, there are no stupid questions. People can, you know, there's no time commitment necessarily, like people can come in and out as they want and ask the questions as they want to. And the idea is that people just learn and work closely together and like feel like they can experiment and play. And like, I've seen great success with it. I'm really proud of all the women who have played in there. And I'm really proud of all the women who I haven't played with yet, who are going to play with, you know, people have been doing amazing in there and it's a thing I want to see more of. That's really awesome. Yeah. I saw some of your pictures. Uh, I forget which con was that actually. There was just a bunch of of ladies, and you're like, "Oh, we're all meeting up," and there's just a ton of them. It's just like the most like gang picture ever, and then you all did a CTF. So, <laughs> pretty sweet. Um, Thank you. But yeah, um, so yeah, we've heard a lot of great things about your group and the people that you're working with, and I really wanted to like let you just talk about, you know, what are some of the the real barriers of, of entry that you've seen um, with the people that you interact with, because. There's a lot of people in general that have a hard time with wanting to sign up for CTFs because it is intimidating. It's a very like macho sort of thing. Like we are the best hackers in the whole earth and blah, blah, blah. But there's a lot of people that are clearly a lot more skilled, um, but they don't have a, they don't feel they have a platform to actually go in and, and try stuff out. So I guess, uh, I don't know if you wanted to talk to us a bit about some of the people that you've worked with and some, and what are the, the barriers that you are seeing and how are you overcoming those by working in a group? Um, so it, um, yeah, no, it's super real. And it's not, it's not a problem that is limited to women. You know, in, in doing this, I've talked to a lot of guys who are like, I wish I had something like this when I was a noob. Like I've never felt like I had a space where it was okay for me to come in and ask questions. Like it's, you know, like these spaces are intimidating for us too. And that's super real. And like, super valid and 
I would love it if some guy out there would come and, you know, create CTF resources like that for noobs who are guys, you know, like, I feel like I don't scale super well as it is. And it would be amazing if I were not the only person out there who's doing work like this. So if anybody's feeling inspired, like, please go forth and do that. That would be awesome. You know, um, I mean, generally speaking, yeah, it's like, I think, you know, you go into CTF spaces that aren't ones that I have a hand in and, and you, you feel it, you know, people very much have their heads down. They're not smiling. They're not talking to each other, you know, like, like people, you know, if you come in and like, it's not really a question asking kind of space and there's, you know, I mean, it, like CTFs are competitive, even if I'm not necessarily emphasizing that, like, but they are competitions, but you know, people get weird around competitions. And so they're, they're not being nice to each other. They're not helping each other. And um, and I think that those that can create really intimidating spaces for people where they're like, oh, I'm not good enough to be in here. You know, like, I don't feel like I'm smart enough. I don't feel like I belong. And um, but also like, yeah, you are, <laughs> you know, like you almost certainly do belong yeah. in there. And, you know, like you are, you know, I have complete faith that you are smart enough. Like one of the women that we were uh, playing with at DEF CON came in in the morning and was like, I don't think I have any skills. Like, I don't think I'm smart enough to do this. Like, you know, I don't know that I'm, that I feel like I'm able to. And that evening um, there was the kind of WISP hacker one uh, bug bounty thing event. And uh, one of the women who had expressed that in the morning totally swept it, like just got everything, um, won a bunch of money and uh, good for her. That's awesome, you know? And, and she, she came back the next day and she was like, you know, thank you for providing this space because I wouldn't have necessarily felt like I would have belonged in that space or been able to do that if I hadn't had like this this morning. And like, fuck yeah, that's what I want. You know, like, like a lot of people just, they have the skills, they have the know-how, like they just need the tiniest little push. And like, you know, it's a really beautiful thing to be able to watch people grow, you know? Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's that's a thing I want to see more of for everybody, honestly. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like it's a sort of thing where people just are always going to try to be closed off and have their own sort of little club of whatever exclusionary sort of thing. But I mean, there's tons of people that, you know, are just awesome that you, you I feel like the sort of old, old mindset of just like things have to be, I don't know, I guess like a, a boys club sort of thing is is slowly coming down but we're seeing like really awesome people just come out of the woodwork that maybe even five or ten years ago would have been would have been given a lot more shit than they are now i'm not saying they're not anymore but <laughs> it's just good to see that there's those sort of spaces that are being developed by people that they can actually bring their own people up you know and be involved in our the whole community as a whole you know absolutely yeah and there's you know like there's so much talent out there, right? You know, like there are so many people who have so many brilliant ideas and the more we create a community where those people can feel like they can be a part of it and feel like they can share those ideas, like the more we all benefit from that. I'll say yeah. something, uh, absolutely. So I went to a, a CTF kind of for noobs thing last year in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm trying to pull up my laptop because I put their sticker, Hacker Grounds. They put the, together a CTF on last year, and uh, I specifically sat at the uh, like I sat at the table. I walked in. And I was like, I've seen those people before. I've seen those people before. Like I've seen these people at a few cons, but I don't know if they're very good at CTFs. And I specifically sat at their table 
And uh, turns out it was all of their first uh, CTF. All of them. This is the first time they've ever done a CTF. So um, I was like, well, there goes winning. And I was joking with them, but they kind of like took it. I was like, guys, I'm joking. I, I'll, I'll do whatever it takes to teach you guys some stuff. And sure enough, we get into it. And, you know, I teach, I showed them, oh, well, by the way, if you want to do some PHP stuff, this is what you do. And by, by the end of the day, we, we only had like 50 points on the board out of like 8,000. But uh, I'll tell you that those six individuals at the table will, from now on, guaranteed at least get those flags. And, you know, I uh, when I went to uh, DerbyCon, sure enough, there they were on their own team. I, I don't know where they placed, but, uh, you know, they weren't. They weren't struggling. They weren't sad. They weren't upset. They were like, "Well, we didn't get the, we didn't get what we wanted, but we we still did work." I was like, "There you go. That's what it's about." Yeah, and it's about learning, you know. I mean, like, like the and and about sharpening your skills. Like, and the if you can if you can confidently leave saying that, like, yeah, I learned stuff. Like, I taught other people a thing. Somebody taught me a thing. Like, that's awesome. You know, like, really, that's what it's about at the end of the day. I just want to uh, quickly just jump in and say there is a CTF channel on uh, Thug. If anyone wants to play one that Thug Crowd isn't playing, like we haven't done whatever, like just post in there and someone will play with you. Like it's there's no we like there's no uh, there's no real like Thug Crowd CTF team. Just like go there and do it. And other people like you know exactly what you guys are saying. Just try talk to people. If someone sees you with a question or you ask something, then uh, you know we'll. Someone will respond. Yeah, it's been pretty cool. I remember, I forget, it was the Seesaw one. I came on and all of a sudden someone just posted it. I think you posted it. And then everyone just started doing it. And it was just like really cool. But yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Though, the sort of community is being built up, though, with all their, you know, people that you're involved with, uh, Ian. And definitely want to see more stuff like that. But I, I really would like to know, though, what your thoughts, I guess, are on how, how do you get more women involved in both InfoSec and CTFs? I mean, it could be. You can answer it either way, but I just feel like there's there's a lot of pushes for increasing, um, I guess, exposure at a younger at a younger level for STEM sort of things. But I guess what I want, I'm interested in hearing your takes on how you would actually entice more women to get involved in this sort of space. Um. Well, I don't. I think that I. Okay. I have a daughter who's also going into tech, um, and you know watching her navigate her way through middle school, junior high school, high school, you know, with fewer and fewer girls on her, you know, in the in the classes relating to engineering and computer science every year. You know, I mean, you can watch this happen. It is happening. I don't think that it's that girls are not interested. I think that girls are interested. Um, there's nothing inherent to, you know, being, you know, growing up, uh, you know, female, that, uh, that means that you're not going to be interested in STEM subjects. The thing is that there are so, there's so much bullshit in society, if you'll just excuse my French for a minute, like, that, that says that, that, you know, every girl who runs into a teacher who's like, are you sure you don't want to be doing, you know, something else, you know, or, you know, boys in their classes who are, you know, are giving them shit for being there. Um, a lot of it isn't like, can girls get more interested in STEM? Like girls are here, girls are interested. It's, can we make the environment better for them? And that starts at a young age and it continues our whole lives, right? So it's, you know, like we need to make an industry that 
um, that is inclusive and welcoming to people who aren't men. And, you know, there's a thousand different ways that that could be done. Part of it is, um, I would say like language erasure. It's sort of, it sounds kind of like whiny, you know, like complaining about nothing, but like if you're constantly being called an ops guy and everybody who, every hacker who gets referred to in the generic is always he, and you only ever see pictures of men, men on panels, men speaking, men depicted, if there's no representation of people who like you, I think that that can be really hard for people. They're like, oh, I don't belong here. You know, it's the case on conference panels. It's the case in CTF's rooms. It's the case in a boardroom, you know? And so I think having spaces that have more women in them, being thoughtful about the language that we use to describe people, um, and, you know, and creating communities where people can feel like they can be themselves and in fact can be themselves without getting shit for that, I think is, is a really important set of things that would make a really big difference in terms of making people from more diverse backgrounds feel more welcome um, where they are. Because people want to do this stuff. There are brilliant female hackers out there. You know, it's Absolutely. just, you know, we want to have a space where they can feel like they can be. Yeah. Now, that's a really good point. Just that's a, something that I feel like maybe a lot of people need to to hear is that there are a lot of, of women and just people that I guess aren't men that are, that are um, you know, interested in this sort of thing. And just that the whole setting up the environment for it is, is like key. I mean, just being able to even speak without the sort of overtones that a lot of people might gravitate towards usually and just being kind of mindful of that you know when you're talking in a group full of people because if you're just the one person who's being like you know a jerk or saying sort of just like pointless misogynistic sorts of things maybe are you know it just i don't know it doesn't contribute anything at all to any of the sort of conversation that you're having and yeah it just all it does is just attract people and want people who are who would probably want to work with you on some cool projects not ever want to speak to you so just a message i guess to everybody who does talk like that what he said yeah so, i mean i don't know i feel like there's just there's i've seen a lot of really amazing female hackers just people in general coming out of out of the woodwork recently and it's just really awesome to see and i hope that there's a lot more people that would want to get involved who normally wouldn't because they would be afraid of the sort of culture, I guess, that surrounds it. But it's cool that it's changing and it's cool that it's becoming more inclusive and there's a lot of badass people that are just here to share resources and actually hack stuff instead of just uh, talk shit to each other. <laughs> totally. I mean, you know, like I really, what I want to do is hack all the you know, like, I'm excited about this stuff. I want to geek out about it. I want to geek out about it with other people who are excited about it and like, and have us all learn and grow together. Like, that's awesome. That's like, to me, that's what it's about, you know? Awesome. Oh yeah. So yeah, we got about five more minutes left. Is there anything else that you want to say? Any shout outs you want to do or anything while we're here? Um, if you are a woman or non-binary and you want to uh, join the ladies CTF circle, uh then um dm me on twitter my dms are open i would be thrilled to add you uh this is a thing i'm gonna keep doing so um 
yeah, if you are somebody who feels inspired by that and wants to organize things where you live or at the cons you go to, to uh, increase diverse participation in CTFs or whatever else, like that's fucking awesome. You should go ahead and do that. You don't need to ask me for permission for it. And I'd love to hear about the things that you create. Um, and just generally speaking, I think I would love to encourage people to, you know, to make an effort to make things better where they are, because it doesn't always take a whole lot to like make somebody's day brighter or to like make the community better. And I think if we all put in our, you know, our amount of effort in our little corners, like I think different larger whole. And like, I want to encourage everybody to do that because I think that that is a great thing to do. Awesome. Oh, thank you so much. It's been awesome having you and hearing all of your uh, all of your insights about DevOps and and uh, Kubernetes and, and all the CTF stuff. So yeah. Um, so your what is your Twitter again? Just for people. Who uh, it's are... Ian Coldwater, which is my name. So I A N uh, C like uh, like cold. Um, o L D W A T E R. So like Coldwater. And um, yeah, feel free to come follow me. Uh, say hi if you want to. And yeah. Do you use a block list on Twitter? I do not use a block list. If I have blocked anybody, I have blocked them personally for some reason or another, but I could. All right. (laughs) Anybody have any other questions for Ian before we go? Um, Thank you so much for having me on. This has been great. Uh, I really appreciate talking with y'all. And thanks for being here. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. All right, so everybody, yes, um, what's our calendar? I'm trying to pull it up now. Um, yeah, thanks everybody for listening. Um, our next week, Shell, do we have null cookies next week? Uh, very possibly. Dave's not quite sure. Okay. But... Uh, yeah, we're still getting our um, getting our stuff together. Um, I'm still getting my stuff together since I took a, a break and then didn't, uh, <laughs> didn't do uh, anything for the podcast um so yeah um but um shout out to our patreon supporters we have anthony v uh david freytag uh dead rabbit derek g gabe ortiz hamburger keyboard james just james um matthew h mayor uh no cookies thanks rob poners sterling archer talon and walski it's quite a bit of people we have now which is awesome Anybody here? Also, um, I'm establishing a PO box tomorrow so that I can mail out the CLSSPs that we have not um, mailed out to people yet. Um, so yeah, we will get all that stuff um, together and out. Anybody who is a Patreon supporter, ten dollars or more, gets a automatic CLSSP certification, and they can put it all over their LinkedIn. Uh, any two dollar people can also get a virtual one that is not uh, that's be sent to them in the form of a PDF, and they can hang on on their wall. Um, and yeah, uh, thanks everybody for coming out and, and watching everything with us. Anybody have any last words before we go? Shut up and you had a lawyer. Dan's not here. <laughs> Dan's had a plane somewhere. I thought he was going to be uh, talking to us from there, but I guess uh, yeah. plane Wi-Fi. Well, can... uh, yeah, plane Wi-Fi is like one one second lag. GG. Yeah, <laughs> he said on Twitter he's going to try, and then he posted after that. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> it happens. But um, yeah, thanks everybody for joining. Uh, we'll be back next week. Um, so hit us up if you need anything. Uh, anybody also who is looking to get hired or fill a position, please hit us up. You can join our Discord, elite.club. 
uh, or you can DM us on Twitter for sharing that info with us. Until then, thank you all. Thank you. Next planet. Thank you.